This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and this is episode 157, and we're going to learn a thing or two about some exciting new vertical farming technologies some great things about leadership, and some great advice from somebody that has rubbed shoulders with a lot of important people. So today on the show is Eddie Bedrina, who is the CEO of Eden Green Technology. So Eden Green Technology is a vertical farming technology company. They build, manage, and license a greenhouse technology platform that helps increase local access to nutritious produce using vertical farming practices And we're going to talk a lot about that technology, how it helps address scalability and sustainability with vertical farming and what that looks like. And Eddie has an awesome background. He actually worked with both George H.W. Bush and George Bush. And under W. Bush, the son, he was the executive director of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And he also had a bunch of other responsibilities under that. So, We'll talk about his background, how he got started doing that, some great leadership advice that he got from the Bushes, as well as a great quote that you'll often hear sometimes, it's, the leader is the last one to eat. And I think that really says a lot about who a leader is and what a leader should be. And also some really interesting things about how everyone at Eating Green Technology is helping fight the 3,000 mile salad. Kind of Eddie kind of talks about how your average salad kind of takes 3,000 miles to get to your table and how the awesome technology that they're developing over at Eden Greens is helping cut that distance and you can go from farm to shelf in under 72 hours, which is a really phenomenal turnaround whenever you think about it. And then something we don't talk a lot about, but that's going to be the economic side of vertical farming, what it looks like, how their technology at Eden Green is really helping Um, People that use this technology have greater margins when they implement it. So this was an awesome interview with Eddie. Check him out at the links below. I I learned a ton um, from him about, you know, vertical farming, why we need to 
focus on sustainable farming and stuff like that and also some great leadership stuff. So anyway, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy it. Well, Eddie, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good deal. I'm excited to chat with you. As I was telling you a second ago, I always love learning about vertical farms, hydroponic companies and stuff like that. So I'm excited to geek out with you learning about Eden Green. Um, But before we kind of talk about that, tell us kind of your background and how you got started as the CEO of Eden Greens. Wow. Well, that's a it's a long and sordid past, but I basically have three chapters to my career. The first was in government. So I graduated from A&M, Texas A&M. Uh, not with a degree in ag, but actually with a degree in psychology and uh, had a chance to work for President Bush Sr. in his personal office in Houston. Uh, And so did that uh, during my undergrad years, got my grad degree in public administration and international affairs. Then when I went to work up to D.C., uh, up in Washington, D.C., where I worked for uh, the George W. Bush administration for six years. So that first chapter, I'll say, is international affairs dominated uh, me uh, working at the White House as President Bush's Asian American spokesperson. Uh, and then I came back to Texas uh, because uh, for the most part, D.C. is a horrible place to raise a family. And, uh, and that's where the second half of my career, which uh, was running a, uh, a company called BuzzShift, which uh, was a digital marketing and ad tech company. So I started that from scratch with a business partner. We bootstrapped it, no loans, no lines of credit, just sheer old bootstraps and brought it up and actually grew it to a size where we were able to be, to sell it. Uh, and uh, so we got acquired six years later after we started it. And then we bought it back uh, 11 months after that. So uh, I've got the second chapter of my career, which is entrepreneur. And uh who's been there, done that, and gotten the t-shirt for mergers and acquisitions. And it was during that, the latter half of that second chapter where I really had a chance to take a step back and was afforded the opportunity to take a step back and say, okay, what do I want to do next? What's the next uh, chapter of my life look like? And uh, really three things struck out to me. One was uh, I wanted to run a hardware software company. Uh, Second is I wanted to have an exponential impact such that for every one unit of effort that I put out, I wanted to see a 10 to 20 X return on culture and society around me. And then the third is I wanted to run what's called, uh, or be a part of a redemptive organization. And that's where, uh, leaders are sacrificial leaders eat last. Uh, it's where employees are treated generously, not just fairly. And it's where, uh, society and culture is not just advanced, but it's actually renewed and restored even to a higher base level than it was before. So um, with those armed with those three things that I had been sort of marinating on for a year, uh, I was able to find Eating Green and uh, really uh, come to the company and take over as CEO at a point at which the technology was proven, and we can talk about the technology in a bit, but the technology was proven and patent pending. Uh, but they really didn't have a cogent go-to-market strategy, uh, hadn't found their product market fit, and didn't have a real good sales process. So I came in and uh, really uh, streamlined, identified those, uh, clarified those, and then streamlined them to take it to market. 
So that was two and a half years ago. And uh, here we are today uh, with uh, one greenhouse that's already been built, uh, another greenhouse that at the time of this podcast recording is about four weeks away from being completed, commercial greenhouse. And, uh, and it's uh, more than half of it's already pre-sold. The harvests are pre-sold. And uh, it's, it's able to uh, shrink 45 acres of conventional farming down to an acre and a half. That's awesome. Uh, man, you've got such a diverse background. I love that. I mean, would you say, was there anything really in those early stages when you were working with the Bush administrations that kind of helped guide you a little bit towards the importance of workplace culture and then eventually to Eden Greens and kind of redoing um, kind of that traction a little bit? Hmm. Yeah, I would say that the biggest things all along the way, um, I had a mentor in college who much older, older, he was probably 50, at least 50 years older than me. Uh, and he just encouraged me to always find a mentor on the way up in my professional career, find someone and attach yourself to them and learn as much as you can from them. Because when you learn from folks that are older and more experienced than yourself and really just ask to be mentored, uh, you'd be surprised how much quicker you learn things, how much less pain you go through in learning those and how much quicker you jump, uh, over, you know, honestly over, uh, you know, over your fellow, uh, workers and, uh, over the competition. So I would say, uh, having mentors all along the way was, was sort of the thing that, uh, keyed me into the importance of culture, uh, in, with an organization. Uh, I saw really, really fantastic leaders, obviously, uh, working at the highest levels of government. Um, I saw, uh, folks, uh, head, heads of state on down who were great leaders. And I also saw, heads of state on down who are horrible leaders. And so I really learned by just watching them. Uh, and then so be able to apply that uh, with my company, with BuzzShift the first time around uh, was was really meaningful. And so we really, we built a great cu- culture there. There were some drawbacks that I was able to then apply in my second second go around with Eating Green. So that that's uh, in a nutshell, that's what I would say is like the, the mentorship uh, was really key for me. That's kind of an old... I, I guess maybe an Eisenhower tradition where the leaders eat last. Is that right? Yeah. I forgot where it exactly started, but you know, the military has such a, a great history and tradition of those, those leaders who lead from the front, who, uh, you know, who, who do eat last, who are sacrificial in that respect. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I would say, uh, a, a lot of my, uh, influences, uh, were or are military. And so, uh, I think that's that's probably where I got it from. Mm, I like it. And, you know, I've always been fascinated. Like I, I've had really good mentors throughout my whole life, and I love the importance of building those mentor relationships. Do you think it's also important that, you know, when you're reaching out and getting mentors, should you also have a mentee? That way you kind of get the best of both worlds. You have someone you're learning from and then someone that you're also helping learn. That way you kind of get both sides of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I go out of my way to find one or two guys or gals that I can, um, that I can, and I don't really see it's, it's interesting. I don't really view them as mentees as I'm just walking alongside them there and they just happen to be, you know, younger and less experienced. And so they're my friends, they're my colleagues. Uh, I have a really hard time, you know, envisioning myself as that much older than some of the folks that I'm uh, trying to hang with and trying to be with. Right. Um, but, 
but I am very intentional. Like if you ask, you know, any of my friends, colleagues, trusted advisors, they will say, I'm very, very intentional about relationships. Uh, and, and maybe it's because I, I really had to work at it and because I've benefited so much from it, uh, that they, relationships don't come naturally to me like that. I don't think they come naturally to anyone like that really. Um, but that, but that to, to go deep, uh, with someone, uh, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level, uh, is it takes work and it takes a lot of, uh, purpose and intentionality. So I just, I've tried to do that for folks who are, you know, a step or two behind me on the professional, uh, career path. And then I've tried to look for folks who are a step or two ahead of me. Now, would you say kind of in this digital age of, of COVID and, you know, Zoom meetings and online, do you think it's made being intentional in relationships, even like definitely professional relationships, do you think it's been a little bit harder? Oh, definitely. But it, it's been exponentially harder uh, to, to be intentional and to develop and cultivate those relationships. You know, we, we, that you, every other day you see an article on, Hey, you know, uh, is remote work good? Is it bad? What happens when people go into the office? This is the new normal of, you know, being remote versus being in person. And, and I'll just tell you, like for me personally, and I'm not saying this is a blanket statement or generalization, but for me personally, um, knowing what I know now, uh, if I knew back then what I know now, I would have spent five X more time in and around managers, directors, uh, anyone above me, uh, in person, I would have grabbed as many lunches as I possibly could with them. Um, and it's not because I wanted to engender FaceTime necessarily or influence or anything like that. It's, there is something about in-person relationships and just the exchange of ideas, uh, in the relational capital that grows only through those in-person meetings. Um, that is, that's irrepre irreplaceable. So, you know, if, if someone were to ask me, Hey, what, what's for a young professional, what, what's the best thing that you could do to just leapfrog over all your other colleagues, be in person as much as possible while everyone else is trying to go remote. I would go the exact opposite direction. I would, I would spend the money. I would do whatever it takes to, if it's a remote work, uh, environment and you're, you know, you're, uh, colleagues are, you know, in other cities, I would spend the money to go fly there once a month and just be with them and work out of that office and get, get relational capital built with them. It, it'll help you. I mean, it's, it's, it will compound interest like crazy in the coming years. Yeah. I feel like when you get that face to face, when other people aren't getting that, you, you're much more powerful to build relationships and get ideas off of each other. I mean, and of course, like make a lot better impression. So that's a really good, really good viewpoint. And I'm sure more and more, more and more people will do that. I feel like as we're kind of more people are relaxed and working from home and I don't know, offices are kind of making it like, you know, teleworking can be a thing, a permanent thing instead of just like every now and then. So it's interesting to kind of see how this has not only changed everybody's careers, but also how it's changing how people work their way up the career ladder. Like whether that's doing it the old school way of being in person all the time, or I don't know, just kind of having the best of both worlds in person and online. So it'll be very interesting to see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's one of the great uh, real time social experiments. <laughs> uh, in history. 
No, totally agree. So before we talk about um, Eden Green a little bit more, I got to pick your brain about this. Do you have any really interesting like George W. Bush or George H. W. Bush stories while you spent your, your time there? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm um, sure you have quite a few. I do. Uh, man, I'll just say uh, to to a person, both, both senior and W really have cultivated within their own family, within their close uh, colleagues, they really cultivated um, back to the relationship piece, just a, a, an intentionality of um, knowing everyone around you. And so uh, it was, it was a well-known fact that uh, no one could like out remember uh, staffers name, like white house mess, staff and uh secret service members of his security detail um you know admin assistants no one could out remember him on like not just them and what who they were but their wives their partners their spouses their kids i mean it it was it was uncanny how much uh bush senior knew about just some of the admin staff that was around him. And so what that engendered was this sheer sense of loyalty. Uh, and so the, the, the volunteers in his personal office in Houston after his presidency, way after his presidency, uh, you could trace a lot of them back to volunteering during his congressional days and they just stuck with him through thick and thin. Um, and so I, I, you know, there's not any one story I could probably name off the top of my head just about, about that only to remember the folks, uh, both with him as well as with W, uh, all of us are extremely, extremely loyal. Um, even if later, you know, in later life we disagreed with some of the policies or, you know, you look back and there's always, you know, armchair quarterbacking on decisions made. Uh, I think the vast majority of folks who worked under them and for them uh, are extremely loyal. And it's because they did such a great job of really getting to know uh, everyone down to the White House mess staff. Mm. Yeah, I read both of um, Junior's books, both his about his time in office decision points and then one about mm -hmm. his dad, which was um, what portraits of my father, I believe. And yeah. you yeah. really do get this sense about how for both of them and even just the whole Bush families, I guess, just how important it is to build those relationships. And uh, one of my favorite um, viewpoints from Junior was personal diplomacy. And that was really his like international focus. Like he would go and meet with these world leaders. And I think that can is such a good point, whether that's like in the workplace, internationally, or even with your friends, just being personable. And if you're having any issues, just, you know, not to start drama, just like go and face it head on and just kind of build that trust with one another. So, which, oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, not to get political, but I feel like our, our current political discourse is kind of missing that a little bit. So I think we could all learn a thing or two by reading those books, those uh, books by Junior. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. The, the political landscape now in D.C. on Capitol Hill is light years different than when I even worked on there. Um, it's it was not foreign to us. It was not abnormal to us to have congressional and staff you know, uh, staff baseball games, softball games, uh, under the, 
under the shadow of the of the Washington Monument, and there would be staffers from opposing, you know, offices opposing sides of the aisle, and then all of us would all go grab drinks afterwards, um, and you know, some ended up dating and marrying and uh, all that good stuff uh, from opposite opposite sides of the aisles. And I just think if you asked a staffer now, like the chances of that happening. It would, they would look at you like you had a third eye on your head. <laughs> oh, 100%. Like they wouldn't touch the other people on the other side of the aisle with a 10-foot pole. I mean, yeah. it's weird how it's just changed over like not even, I don't know, maybe even a decade. Yeah, I would say a decade is about right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so moving on, let's talk more about Eden Green. So hydroponics, vertical gardening, stuff like that. Um, so kind of tell us, how do you think things like this, hydroponics and vertical farming can really reshape our food system? So, you know, uh, first off, I, I will be the first to say, like, we are not a silver bullet for the ag industry. There are a lot of things that we in CEA in general, controlled environment agriculture, just cannot grow. And and so uh, I think the the first thing to note is we're not a silver bullet. But then, so then what can we do that's from a competitive advantage or a comparative advantage uh, just makes more sense, right? Economically, environmentally, and otherwise. And I would say, you know, uh, the, the, the leafy greens sector, maybe even berries, herbs, is really where, where we shine. And the reason that is, is because at least for leafy greens and herbs, um, we're we are solving a distribution problem that currently exists in the United States. And that's because 90% of all lettuce, and I want to say like 75, 80% of all leafy greens is grown in two places, one in California, Salinas Valley in California, and then the other in Arizona. And it, that's just not sustainable economically or, or environmentally, right? They're going through a super drought right now. Um, Topsoil is degradating uh, every year. Uh, you know, if I'm in Texas, which I am, and I eat a salad, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a 1,500-mile salad. And if you're on the East Coast, it's a 3,000-mile salad. Like that just, I'm, I'm just telling you right now, <laughs> with supply chain as it is, and it's not going to get a lot better, and with uh, just uh, increase in population and then the degradation to infrastructure, uh, resulting from just more trucks and planes and rail. It's just not sustainable. So you really have to look at, okay, how do we move the farms closer to the population centers um, where it makes sense? How do we move them closer and, and dial down that supply chain uh, cost and the waste associated with that? And that's, so that's where we come in. And I think that's the solution that we can provide. Again, it's not, it's not for everything, but it's definitely uh, for, for some crops like most leafy greens. Yeah, that's such a good viewpoint too, because I feel like some people in the vertical farming industry, they think that this is, that this is going to be the silver bullet. But I mean, yeah, if you're, I mean, for a salad to go 3,000 miles from California to New York City, for example, that's a lot of energy used to move it. Plus, I mean, lettuce isn't the most nutrient dense thing in the world. And so the the offshoot of that is going to be really weird. Like just the ratio of how much it costs to transport it, how long it's going to take versus the impact it's going to have on that person's diet. 
And I mean, I really think like companies like you guys, you can grow it in large facilities, whether they're newly built or newly renovated. And that that 3000 mile salad can go down to like three miles or something a lot smaller. Yeah. And that's where that's where we're focused on. Right. So if we're solving a supply chain, a transportation and distribution problem for nutritious leafy greens, then, okay, how, how does that actually happen? Which is probably what a lot of your uh, audience is thinking like, okay, how, how does that actually work financially? And how does that work, you know, uh, just practically? And what we're basically doing is uh, we have, Eating Green has uh, combined the best of greenhouses and, you know, all the efficiencies that go with growing under the sun combined with the verticality and the density of, of indoor farms. And, you know, if you look at, if you look at the gradient of CEA on one end, you've got greenhouses and greenhouses are, are great. They're efficient. If you've had a tomato in the past 10 years, chance, I mean, more often than not, it may all have be, be grown in hothouses. So, um, you know, if, if not all, then, then the vast, vast majority. So we know it can be done in greenhouses. Uh, so it's economical. It, it cuts out a lot of the, uh, uh, of the pesticides, uh, that are associated with, with produce. The problem with greenhouses is, uh, to get the economies of scale needed to satisfy investors. Um, you're looking at, you know, uh, doing probably 60 acre increments of greenhouses to get those kind of mid teen returns that you're looking for. Uh, I don't know about you, but 60 acres of anything is impossible to find close to a population center that makes remote economic sense, mm, right? Oh, 100%. So greenhouses are economic, but at only at scale. And so they don't solve for the supply chain problem because they still have to be located in rural areas or semi-rural areas. And they don't solve a workforce issue because 60 to 120 acres, which is what every greenhouse company is building right now, um, that has to employ 150, 200 people uh, in a rural environment. That's really hard to find that type of workforce density. Uh, so they don't know, solve for workforce issues. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got indoor vertical farms. And those are the ones that have the shiniest, you know, uh, the, the sheen on them, the, the fancy object, you know, shiny object syndrome on them. Uh, the problem in those is uh, they don't pencil economically. Mm. So a, a, a vertical, a vertical indoor vertical farm is going to cost you around three hundred to three hundred fifty dollars a square foot to build, if not more. And then the light cost, light electricity costs, are in the range of data centers. Uh, so when you really look at the economics, the only thing that they're able to grow are berries and tomatoes. It's really where everyone's headed in that vertical farming space is berries and tomatoes because the margins are higher. And I don't know about you, but the world's not living on berries and tomatoes. <laughs> That's right? true. They, they need much, much more basic commoditized type type food. So, uh, and, and even if it were affordable, all that light electricity, wh where is that coming from? It's probably coming from natural gas or coal power plants. So, your, your ESG uh, sort of facade gets broken down pretty quickly with, with indoor ag companies, surely because of light electricity costs. Um, 
my, my estimation is an acre and a half of, uh, of a indoor farm is probably running around 4 million kilowatt hours a month, which by the way, that's, that's a lot of kilowatt hours. (laughs) Yeah. That's quite a bit. Yeah. So we sit in the middle of that. So what if you could take the economics of a greenhouse, but make them much smaller by doing, uh, the verticality and density of a vertical farm. And that's what Eden Green has done. And it's patented. So it's so simple, but yet so unique that it's it's patent. It's not patent pending. It is patent issued here in the United States and in the EU. So we can do what no one else can do is we can shrink 40 to 45 acres of conventional farms down to an acre and a half, uh, put it right next to a distribution center and then grow uh, leafy greens, lettuce, herbs, uh, at a profit margin that, uh, it's never been done before. So, uh, it's, it's, it's public knowledge now cause I've been f- pretty free with sharing it, but with, with lettuce alone, we'll get, we'll get, uh, 50 to 60% gross margins. Oh, wow. That's, that's a really good margins when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also you're, you're growing year round, like unlike, you know, mm-hmm. traditional agriculture, you guys can grow year round, right? Yeah. So we grow 13 to 17 harvests a year, depending on the varietal and we'll do it 24, seven, 365. So every day there's harvesting, planting, monitoring, and packing going on in our, in our, one of our greenhouses. So what was it like to go through that process of figuring out, you know, like the perfect times to harvest the perfect varieties that work for the systems? Like what was mm-hmm. that kind of R and D and kind of seeing what works and what doesn't, what was that process like? So the company started in 2017 and from 2017 to 2019, before I came on board, they were really what's called testing out the technological proof of concept, right? Does it work? Can it really grow? Um, just binary, can it grow or can it not grow plants? Uh, and then uh, starting to figure out, okay, what? how do you start to scale this out? When I came on board late 2019, um, it, it, we, I shifted it to, okay, we know we can grow. Now can we make the unit economics work? And so there's a, there's a phrase that was not really popular in the last two or three years because no one was focused on it, uh, but it's all, everyone is focused on it now. It's called unit level economics. In other words, profitability. Mm, okay. And uh, and when I came in, I was focused on the unit level economics of each greenhouse. What's the output? What are the market prices for that output? And then what are our grow costs? And you put those two together and you get a basic profit and loss statement, right? Uh, and so that's what we focused on. Hey, can we get these things profitable? And that was a two-year process uh, before and during uh, the COVID the, the pandemic, when the pandemic really hit of trying to figure out, Hey, what varietals work? Um, what can, what's the cost that we need to grow them for? And then what does the market say they're willing to pay for it? Uh, that's, I mean, that is, is ba- that's, that's more product market fit one oh one, right? Do we have a product? Do we have a market and does it fit? Uh, and then once you get product market fit, then, then you have to figure out, okay, how do we go to market? What's our pitch? What's our narrative? And then you have to figure out sales channels and sales strategy. Okay, who are sales? You know, who are targets? Uh, are, are they uh, are they end retailers? Are they distributors? Are they other farms? Are they existing retail labels? 
Uh, and once we figured all that out, then it was time to go to market. Uh, and, and that took the better part of about two years um, since I've been on board. Uh, and then since then, we've identified product market fit. We've identified the market. Uh, we've built another greenhouse, which will be done in a bit. And then, uh, and then we've started to sell that greens, those, those harvests uh, through a distributor to end retailers to provide uh, private label, white label, and then existing retail label uh, uh, greens. So I, I just thought about this. How, how easy it, is it for you guys to just pivot? Like, let's say you're growing, I don't know, like a kale, for example. You're on a lot of it, and then you figure out that consumers really don't want it. How quick is it for you to pivot these greenhouses to meet consumer demand? 30 days. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So each think of each of the greenhouses, you know, as economic powerhouses, economic little powerhouses unto themselves, right? Power plants. And so depending on the demands of each uh, local market and the retailers and the distributors that we're selling to uh, based on seasonality, right? Uh, based on um, consumer demand of, oh, it's Thanksgiving time. So they want more spinach or, right? Or uh, we're down South. And so they want more collard greens or they're up North. So they want more kale, whatever that is, we can, we can uh, pivot to those because our, um, our harvests are in 21 to 28 day cycles. So as soon as one's harvested, we take it out and we just plant it with another varietal. Right. Mm -hmm. So, it, so we're actually less concerned because we have a pretty consistent, uh, growing system and platform. And we've kind of got all the, uh, I'll say the, the recipes, if you will, dialed in for each varietal, it's really more of market pricing. Right. Uh, and does, does it make sense for us to grow this certain varietal because the, the margins are good enough for us? Um, and like I said, you know, lettuce, chopped and bagged lettuce, we'll get 30%, uh, we'll, we'll get 30% margins on those when it's all said and done. Uh, and so, uh, people ask us, well, man, lettuce, that's like so commoditized and it's, you know, it's low margin. Well, it is commoditized, uh, the advantage is it's also commoditized. The TAM, which is the total addressable market of lettuce alone, is around eight billion dollars domestically. Um, I, I don't know about you, but if you could just get five percent of that TAM, you're you're doing pretty well, right? That's a that's a pretty good business. Oh yeah, uh, that's not so, bad at all. Yeah, so um, we want more than five percent of that TAM and more than you know five percent of the overall leafy greens and herbs uh, market, but. But that's a but that's a pretty good start. And when you can get thirty percent margins on that, then then I'll go I'll go commodities all day long, right? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, and, I don't blame you. And that's at conventional pricing. So we don't have our own brand, and maybe that's another differentiator. Um, not maybe it is another differentiator between us and other vertical farms and other greenhouses. Is uh, we don't want our own label, um, our own retail label. Uh, we want to be greenhouse is infrastructure and that means we want to be everywhere we want to be ubiquitous and we want to be unsexy and unseen right um, you and i neither you or i know uh the name of the power plants where we get our power mm. we just know we have it you flick a switch on and you assume it works we want to be that way for leafy greens and herbs you don't know where you're going to get it from 
I mean, you'll get it from, you know, Walmart, Amazon, Trader Joe's, Wegmans, whatever the case may be, Hy-Vee, Albertsons. You just, you just know you get it and it's consistent, right? And it's there every time you go to the grocery store, every time you add it to your cart, it's there. That's who we want to be. Now, have you seen big company? I mean, other companies like Aero Farms and stuff kind of see what you guys are doing and they're like, man, we need to hop on the game just like Ian, Ian Green. So have you seen that kind of reaction? Yeah, we have. And they are mystified how we can go private label. <laughs> they, I mean, they really are. They're like, I, I don't understand how you get the margins that you do. There's got to be something somewhere. And, and the answer is yes, there is a thing and it's called our patented technology right? That we can, that we can, our grow costs are so low. Our density per square foot is so high, uh, that we can compete on the conventional level on the the wholesale level, um, with conventional farms, whereas they can't. Uh, and it really is a testament to the inventors of our, of our technology, the two South African brothers who are still my CTO and COO. Uh, they are, they, they invented it out of, out of a, uh, resourcefulness rather than out of um, just an abundance of capital and resources. Mm. They, they literally invented this in their garage in South Africa. Uh, and, and this by this, I mean the grow, the growing platform and the towers, the grow towers that we have. And they did it because um, they saw a kid who was stuffing his pockets with candy because it wasn't his day to eat. It was his three-year-old sister's day to eat back home. And so he was, he was hoarding candy as a meal for his sister back home. And so when you, when you come out of that experience and you come out of uh, just the lack of resources that are in a developing country like, uh, like South Africa, you start differently, right? Um, you start being scrappy. You start being resourceful. You start being very, very energy and input efficient, that gives you a much better chance to be profitable uh, than some of our competitors who started with an abundance of everything and they tried to figure out profitability later, right? Yeah, it's interesting what can happen whenever you start with a need, when you're really looking to fix something, instead of just like, you know, turning a profit and making a billion dollars. It's interesting to see what can happen when that hap- when that kind of arises, that necessity. Yeah, you know, and it's also, it's a function of of our markets, right? In the last five years, the heyday, if you will, since 2017, uh, the internet and the tech side of things has really influenced the way companies and startups start their businesses. And they started from a, hey, let's figure out a problem. Let's figure out a solution for a problem that may not even exist right now. And then let's go after market share and growth rather than actual revenue and profitability, right? So when you start from that perspective, when you get a market correction like now, or you get the pandemic like now, um, it is much, much harder to pivot from uh, high burn growth to profitability than it is to do it the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so fortunately uh, for our company, it, we just started with very, very uh, efficient founders uh, in terms of building the, at least in terms of building the uh, the product and what it can do. 
Uh, and, and since I've been on board, we've always been focused on unit economics so that when this correction hit, uh, and other people are, you know, uh, are really struggling to, to pivot towards profitability. Well, we've always been focused on that. Um, and, and we're in a much better position. That's so cool. And I don't know, you sometimes get rubbed the wrong way when you have these multi-billion dollar companies like, I mean, like, like all these different vertical farm companies that you can see are just scaling really quickly. They're really trying to take advantage of the industry and just kind of try to get ahead of everybody when they're not turning a profit, but they're trying to put profit ahead instead of, you know, finding a need and finding a solution to a problem, like actually trying to have a really good impact instead of just getting ahead of everybody. So it's really refreshing. You guys seem like you have the right direction and you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we do. And I think we are. So it's a really, I mean, for, for the team, it's a really exciting time to be, um, to be a part of the company and, and I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of it. I mean, I, I really am. It's, uh, I've got such a great team behind me and we're, we're building and we're growing while other people are shrinking. So that's, that's mm-hmm. probably a, a good sign as well. Yeah. Th- that is usually a good sign. I mean, usually. So what's next for you guys? Like what's the next goal? I mean, what's it going to look like for Eden Green and maybe the, the next five or 10 years? Yeah. So the, the vision is to have 80 of these greenhouses up in eight years. Uh, and they're all going to be, it's good, basically will constitute a mesh network of greenhouses infrastructure, right? So think about, um, think about routers and, uh, and, uh, you know, the internet and, and wireless, you know, wireless routers, you've got a mesh network that everywhere you go, you're always covered. And in the same sense, everywhere we go in the future, we always want to have local, locally sourced, uh, greens and not local for local sake, but because local equals accessible to everyone because it's economically makes sense for everyone to buy, not just the high end premium labels, but actually like your wet walls, right. Mm-hmm. And your you're just your basic, uh, spring mixes and chopped in bag. They need to be accessible and affordable to everyone. They need to be safe. Um, and the only reason, the only way they can be safe is really as if, uh, you've got uh, good processes, but also you can cut down and eliminate the supply chain. Right. And then, uh, and then at the same time, uh, you know, they have to be, uh, just, uh, within, uh, you know, within from, from, I would say from farm to shelf in 72 hours, uh, at the most, because then it really affects how long it lasts in their, um, in their refrigerators uh, and how, how little it degrades. So then what you end up with, because it's local, uh, it's consistent year round, uh, it's accessible to everyone. And then, uh, and it's safe. See, that's such a huge thing. I mean, from farming to shelf, like you were saying in in 72 hours, because I can't tell you how many times me and my friends and family, you know, you, you buy a head of lettuce or just any sort of produce, but by the time it goes bad, you you've only eaten like maybe a half of it or a third. And, it, a large portion of that is because it's just shipped from so far away. And that oh, yeah. really takes down like, you know, how long you can actually eat it. So, I mean, it's not like you're not eating it quick enough, kind of. I mean, maybe, but it's just kind of the way the system is now. And it's good that, I mean, you guys' technology is definitely going to fix that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, there are whole memes, right, on the internet about, you know, just taking a full bag of lettuce out of the fridge, throwing it away and putting the same new bag in, right, the mm-hmm. newer bag in 
because you never even, some people just forget about it, right? And and then it's bad before they even open it. Uh, you know, but on a more serious level, like I'm out. So again, I'm a psychology major. There is a distinct psychological decision that goes on when you enter a grocery store. And you don't really think about it, although some people are thinking about it more now because of uh, inflation. But when you go to the produce section, there's a split second decision that you have of, hey, this costs $5. I know it's probably going to last in my fridge for three days. I'm only going to be able to eat half of it. Um, But in the middle of the grocery store, there's food that's also $5. It's in a box. It's processed it's not going to go bad. And if I only have $5 to spend or $10 to spend or $20 to spend, what am I going to choose? Mm. What am I going to choose for myself? And what am I going to choose for my family? Most people will make the choice to go shop in, not in the perimeter of the grocery store, but in the center of the grocery store, not because they don't want to be healthy. They actually do want to be healthy, but they just know it's going to last longer. Right. So if I can make, if eating green can make a, that change in that split second psychological decision, then we've not just affected the consumer, but we've infected, affected their families and we've affected the way uh, that they consume food in a much healthier, much more nutritious way. So we're really affecting communities and social health and hospitalization rates and education levels and all of those things surely because it started with that first split second psychological decision when they walked in the grocery store. Yeah, that's true. And that's a huge thing with like even food deserts where you've got communities that the the grocery store is maybe 10 miles away. So maybe they don't have a car. They get there like once or twice a week. And of course, like you said, they're going to buy the non-perishable items or at least the perishable items are going to last a lot longer. And I mean, they're not doing that because they want to be unhealthy. They're doing it because it's, you know, you've got to buy groceries. They're going to last a long time. So, I mean, if you guys can shorten that supply chain, I mean, eating green sounds like it can really do a lot of good, a lot more than you might think just when you kind of look at the technology. Yeah, we, we can. And that that's really, people ask, hey, you know, who are you marketing to and what are you saying? And and we're not really marketing to anyone yet. I mean, obviously we are marketing to, uh, to the distributors and retailers to whom we're selling, but really more we're educating folks on, hey, what kind of value both economically, financially, but also health-wise, what kind of value can be unlocked when we grow larger and larger and larger? And then what kind of value can be unlocked just from what, these two brothers invented in South Africa, you know, 10 years ago, Hmm. that's where, that's, that's where most of our marketing dollars are going because we know we can have such a huge impact on society and culture, uh, just by putting up this mesh network of greenhouses. Yeah. When you go for that impact, instead of just profitability, I feel like you have not only a bigger impact, but also a more significant impact. Which, you know, everybody loves a good success story, but they also love it when, you know, like lives are literally being changed by new technologies, by new developments. So this is all cool. I, I This is great. I was very pleasantly surprised. Like I, I like to do just a little bit of research. That way I can be surprised a lot by the guests. So I'm very pleasantly surprised. Well, thank you. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. We've been, it's been a, 
it's been a long time coming and a, a huge work in progress and, and my team and I've just kind of been our, have our heads down and working. So it's, it's good to come up every now and then for air and talk to folks like you and, uh, just, just tell, tell, tell you more about what we're doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. So if people want to learn more about Eden Green, um, where can they go? Where can they follow the story of it? And also where can they follow you at to kind of follow and see what you're doing? Sure. So uh, EdenGreen.com is the best way to learn what we're doing. Um, and that's like Eden, like the Garden of Eden, dot, uh, green.com. And then for me, uh, I mean, social-wise, Eden Green Tech is kind of all of our handles uh, on social. And then for me, uh, my last name, Badrina, B-A-D-R-I-N-A, Badrina.com is where you can find me. Deal. Well, Eddie, this has been so cool chatting with you, man. You've got an awesome background and it's cool to see what you do with what you're doing with Eden Green. So best of luck, man. We'll have to touch base with you after you've built a couple of those greenhouses, uh, maybe the 80. We'll see how that goes, but we'll have to interview you later on down the road. (laughs) That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, don't leave just yet. Don't forget to subscribe if you are not already subscribed. And check out Eddie at the links below and Eden Green Technology at the links below as well as thefarmtraveler.com. And if you're new, subscribe. Might have already said that. Definitely already said that. And don't forget to share with a friend or family member that always helps us reach more and more people. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.